Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, who is the heart of the show, also the liver and the lymphatic system. Hello, David. <laughs> Hello, Peter. Good, good to see you. Anna Vicino, lovely, inquisitive, masterful. Hello, Anna. And also the appendix of the show. <laughs> the appendix of the show. Good to see you. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. Peter, that would leave the colon of the show. And I think by process of elimination. And proud to be a, f- a healthy, functioning colon. On that note, Anna, why don't we kick off what we're talking, <laughs> talking about? Because you never start with the colon. You go head down. Let's do this. This is true. Today, we're going to be discussing a, a new blood test for cancers that unfortunately mistakenly told people that they had cancer. And then we're going to get to why mosquitoes like you the best. I know they like me the best and they like Peter the best. And oh, man. I'm dying to find out this answer. I have such issues. In this just happened, and I love when we have breaking news that really impacts people today, a new drug combo from ovarian cancer that looks so hopeful and, and hopefully immediate. And the time you go to sleep at night can affect your entire life, your, your rhythms, how you function during the day, and you may be going to sleep at the wrong time. I know I am because I never go. To, I go to sleep eight different times. So we'll get into that. But let's start off with the first, uh, the first question. Okay. So apparently there was a blood test that there were s- several hundred customers who were mistakenly notified that they detected cancer. How, how can that have happened? It sounds like it's very Theranos. Like what is going on that this thing happened? So this technology has been around. And remember Elizabeth Holmes, who's now sitting in prison listening to us about this story. Yes. This new technology comes from a company called Grail. And the promise is that a simple blood test will identify 50 different kinds of cancer. And what happened as a glitch is that 400 of their customers were notified that they had cancer. And the reality is they did not. And they trace this back, the company traced this back to a software glitch in one of their customers that was a telemedicine provider. Those problems were immediately corrected. And I, so I don't think that's intrinsic to their, their product. The test that they're using is called Gallery. And again, it claims to uh, detect 50 cancers from one blood test. It uses a DNA sequencing and machine learning technology. And what that means in English is that there is cell-free DNA. So DNA that free floats in our bloodstream that's not attached to a cell. And this is different than the cells that are attached uh, with the DNA. And what they found was they can find these cancer particles in these free-floating DNA uh, molecules. And these correlate with very specific cancers. And the difference in these cell-free DNA products versus the DNA in cancer cells, they're different. And they're more sensitive. And we can measure actually the the higher the level of these cell-free DNA particles uh, correlates with how aggressive a cancer is. The study takes about two to three weeks to get your results. It costs about $1,000. And when they compare, these are called liquid biopsies because they're done from blood. They're not done with a needle and going into solid tissue to get a biopsy. And when they compare the standard biopsies, 
with these liquid biopsies, it was incredible how much more sensitive these liquid biopsies are. They're like 76% accurate versus a mid-50s percentile accuracy when they do a tissue biopsy. What? So, and part of the problem there, it's a good question. Can you guess why that might be? Because you're capturing more of the product, you're more accurate because of the floating DNA? Correct. When you do a biopsy of tissue, you're going in relatively blind. You're just going into this tissue and those cells may be you know, a couple millimeters away from where right. the needle went. With prostate cancer, we talked about this in our last show, we do first an MRI so we can isolate a specific area of that prostate gland. And so the yield goes up. But with the liquid biopsies, they're far more sensitive and specific. They can't detect all types of cancer yet. Right now, they're limited to breast, lung, prostate, colon, and rectum. And yet, the technology seems to be pretty solid at this point. A lot more needs to be done. They're non-invasive, which is an advantage. As I said, you can't always get good cellular data from a tissue biopsy because you literally, you might just miss it. And not only that, but these cell-free DNA particles that they're testing for can actually pick up mutations in cancer cells that have not yet really manifested themselves in these tissues, in these organs. So again, it's got a, a very interesting life ahead for us and how easy that would be if if this now becomes part of our diagnostic menu. So David, do you recommend this first before you do a regular biopsy? Since A, a regular biopsy is more intrusive and can punish somebody in a way where they lose function or whatever or painful. Whereas if, if this is more accurate, why wouldn't you do it? Is it because of cost, cost prohibitive? No, I think we will do it, Peter. I think we just don't have enough information yet. Next year, what we're going to see is that the National Cancer Institute is going to run a pilot program of 24,000 people that are healthy to see if they can make some sense out of this. Uh And if that study shows some viability, then they're going to expand this to 225,000 people. So I think wow. in the in the near future, we're going to be able to answer your, your question, Peter. Coming. What these tests ultimately do, however, is let's say we identify a cancer of the lung. Then we go and we scan the lungs, and we have a, a roadmap now to where these cancers are. We do this now with biomarkers. So we have biomarkers. We know about PSA for prostate cancer. There's a CA-125 for ovarian cancer. There's a CA-199 for pancreatic cancer. And breast cancer has a CA-15 and it has a CA-2729. So there are current biomarkers that when we find these biomarkers in the system, we then look at those organs specifically with whatever scans and diagnostics we have. So the idea of this is not new, but the technology is far more specific. It's interesting in reading an article about the company, the one comment was, and I'm glad that they're the forerunner in this field, but they said they weren't aware of any harm to patients, except at the house of the patient who thought he had cancer for a week and a half. Yeah. That must have been how long yeah. before they notified them that, oops, my bad, you know, you don't have cancer, which by the way, is a great phone call. And right. they were relieved to have it. How long did they live with the knowledge that they had cancer? Do you know? No, that I'm not sure of. And a correlate to that question, Peter, is 
how often when we do our standard biopsies does it come back as a false positive? And the reality is it's, it's not very often. So we're, we're pretty accurate when we do find a cancer in a tissue. The problem is they're not, all these biopsies are not that sensitive. So you can mm. actually miss up to 50% of cancers if you've gone, gone to the wrong target. And even in these liquid biopsies, the sensitivity is still such that we're missing probably 50%. But nonetheless, this is, a, this is a great advance, yes. It's incredible. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to make our lives a lot easier, and uh, patients will get their results pretty quickly. And again, the benefit of these biopsies, these liquid biopsies, being able to predict the progression of these tumors, the mutations of these tumors, how well we're doing with the therapies for these tumors, monitoring therapy, will be incredible. Can you imagine if this just becomes a part of the CBC that gets ordered once a year when you do your physical? Wouldn't that be amazing? That is what's going to happen. I mean, we do these, in my office, we do these tumor markers routinely for people having their physicals. And it has, I would say, saved several people's lives by focusing us onto an area that we did not think was problematic. So yes, there's a there's a great value in this. And as it gets competitive, hopefully these companies will drive the prices down so that right. it'll be somewhat affordable. Right. Moving on, I want to talk about this. Now, this is <laughs> this is far less important, but it's also very important if you live anywhere that has mosquitoes and you're the target of their their um breeding ire. I don't know what what else to call it. I don't even know what they're doing. Is it that's what I've heard. It's it's the girl, it's the lady mosquitoes getting some blood for their eggs. I don't even know what ha- I'm hoping you could demystify the whole thing, but can you tell us why mosquitoes like some of us better than others? Absolutely, Anna. But to your first question, there are far more mosquito bites out there than there are cancers. So this is not a trivial issue. It's not um, trivial, but at least it's not a cancer. But- may I say, for some of us who are allergic, um, I got a bee sting. I went to a day camp when I was a kid and I got a bee sting on my ear. My ear was five times the size I mean, I swell up. Yeah. I'm, I must be so allergic. And mosquito bites are the size of a silver dollar. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And they, st- they last for They're days. They're like golf balls on my arms. I hate, I can't and stand I, them. If, if 10 of us go out, I'm the one that's going to come back with the bite. So there's got to be something. Yeah. There are reasons for that. We spoke last episode about ticks. And like the ticks, the mosquitoes like this warmer, wetter weather. And because of global warming, we now have a bigger problem than we've had in the past with the season uh, that's been extended for mosquito bites. And remember, there's some illnesses, some viruses that the mosquitoes can carry around. And most of these you've heard of, there's Zika, which actually can be sexually transmitted once it's in your system, attacks infants in the womb. There's a West Nile virus, which is uh, deadly, and 80% of the people that get this are asymptomatic. There's dengue is another mosquito-borne viral illness, and it's actually spreading everywhere. Malaria, we all know, uh, which can be fatal. There's a vaccine that's going to be here within the year for malaria. That's a great thing. The one virus that I think is interesting is yellow fever that mosquitoes carry. And uh, this is generally seen in Africa and South America. But in the 1700s in Philadelphia, 
there was an outbreak of yellow fever. Now, in the 1700s is when our country was forming and the capital of the country was in Philadelphia, the birthplace of several things, including Peter, uh, <laughs> Peter's birthplace. Mm -hmm. And I think on that bell, they actually carved Peter's name. As they, a picture. No, and a photo. And a photo. If, my, if mom, my mom. Oh, that's very year, detailed. Yes. Thank you. So they had this outbreak in the in the mid 1700s, and a lot of people died with this. And there was a big population boom because people were all coming to the new capital. And by the winter, all these infections died off. So we actually didn't see it. And we didn't see it again until 1905 in the U.S. when we saw some cases. But we, we just don't see it that often here. And there are vaccinations for this, but it's not common here in the United States. And to answer your question, uh, both of you actually, about who gets bitten and why, males are not interested. So we're not getting bitten by males. Females make up the body of who's biting us, but only a certain percentage of females. And they're only specific mosquitoes that carry virus. So that's sort of the demographic of these mosquitoes and how you can tell a male from a female if they're buzzing around your head. Good luck. Well, I will tell you this. I now have internalized and externalized mosquito misogyny. So thank you for that. <laughs> so do you, do you want to take a guess, Peter, Anna, uh, Lori, jump in, uh, of why they need our blood, what they're really going after? Um, for their sick agenda? Nourishment for the young? Absolutely, Women's Peter. Food, food. They're feeding like baby birds. Yes. It, they, the joke is on us, it's blood. So they're looking for the protein, the iron, and the amino acids in our bloodstream to help nurture their eggs. Wow. Now, there are reasons why they like certain people over other. I think, Peter, you meant something, mentioned something about how you smell. So they are attracted to certain scents. <laughs> That's right. When I was lifting my arm, too, I was like, do I smell? And by the way, if you're not seeing this and you aren't, uh, just flashed her armpit, and I don't know why. Well, <laughs> because it's funny said, what we do I was while scratching my back, subjects. right when he said, "If you smell," and I was like, Do I smell? "During the show, what you can't see is we're talking about certain illnesses. We're checking body parts while we're we doing are. this. Sometimes Anna will just open her mouth, and I'll look in from. from yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And we're in different locations, which is really makes it tough. So, so the good news in in the scent department of this, they they also run away from other scents. So if there's somebody around you that says, boy, I never get a mosquito bite. It. Go sit next to that person. Why don't they get like a Tom Cruise? We find out that Tom Cruise is a scent that mosquitoes don't like. And then you can buy the Tom Cruise at the store. Right, and you spray it. It's your, your anti-mosquito pheromone. Yeah, and Unlike sometimes of the year you smell it like doesn't really work. Bingo. Doesn't that make sense? It makes sense, but I think you're on to nothing here, Peter, okay, because, thanks. you know, we've had this information. Next thing and... I was going to do was ask for investors. So you just <laughs> Shark Tank, yeah, sure, everything. Yeah, sure. Shark Tank, smell like Tom Cruise. So there are a few things that they're attracted to. They're attracted to sweat. So to you raising your arm, Anna, and smelling your armpit, this is, you're right in there. They also like body heat, and they're attracted to carbon dioxide release. So remember, we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. <laughs> so don't exhale, that folks. Are, that's right. People that are, are heavy breathers. Wow. They're, you are two times more likely to be bitten by a mosquito if you're pregnant. 
and that factors back into body temperatures are higher in pregnant women, and they also tend to be emitting more carbon dioxide. Peter, you went out with your dog in the yard and you were chewed up. For those of us um, that don't know Peter very well, Peter is a tall man, and they tend to like taller people. So the so, entire NBA would be bitten up unless he smelled like Tom Cruise. <laughs> Get the well, Tom Cruise spray. There are the, there are those other variables. If wow. any of them are pregnant, yes. Wow. And, and if any of them are sweating, yes, which is likely. They're, they're also. <laughs> I also found this interesting. They're alcoholics. If you're drinking a beer, they're they going to find it. you. Because yes. it's their way of getting high. That's a party. <laughs> hey, guys. Freeloaders. Yeah. Get a job, mosquitoes. <laughs> it's like your, your arm becomes a pub. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I, there's some myths about mosquito bites. So I'm going to test you guys. Okay. okay. Um, I love a test. I love it. Blood types. Do they matter? Do they not matter? Not they matter. Matter. Anna, you get a point. They don't matter. They're really just looking for our protein. They don't care about sugar. They don't care about anything else. Fair-skinned people, are they more vulnerable to bites? Yes. Yes. You're both wrong. No points there. They're mm. not. What happens with fair-skinned people is they're just more prominent. The bites are more prominent. So they're not really attracted to that size we just talked about. They like adults, tall adults. That's why adults are more often bitten than kids. And the colors that they're attracted to is very interesting. Can you guys guess as to what colors they might be attracted to? Well, I, uh, I, I'm guessing like red, like a bull, but I, whatever you say, I'm going to go by the color that makes them not attracted to me. How about dark versus light? What would your guess be? <gasps> light colors. Yeah, light colors. No, because light, yeah, yeah, light, yeah. Okay, no, no, no. No, you're both wrong again. Dark I color. love this test. I, I do wear and, a lot of black, you know now I need David? to change it. What I love about David, he's not judgmental. You're both wrong again with the implied <laughs> moron as a subtext. <laughs> okay, so having said that, you want to redeem yourself. Can you guess why they're more attracted to dark colors? Because of their uh, soulless um, vendetta and no purpose on this earth? Okay, that's one guess. Less of a threat? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> he's like, this is going nowhere. The, the, <laughs> right. The dark colors are the colors that match the animals that they prey upon naturally. So they are more attracted to dark colors. So solutions. Wear your EPA registered drug repellent, like DEET is one of those. If you're going to put on sunscreen, put on your, your bug repellent after the sunscreen and repeat, you know, over and over again. Light-colored clothing and uh, loose clothing, because loose clothing, they have a harder time getting to the skin because there's more clothing around you. And garlic, uh, we think, might be helpful. And Great. There, there's, back to clothing for a minute, there's some clothes that actually have a repellent built in. Uh, these are the permethrin that they put into the clothing. You can buy permethrin spray. I bought the spray, and I sprayed the suitcase before we traveled, yeah, you and you could, but you can spray tents, you can spray your clothes, and it lasts for six weeks or six washes. I'd rather buy that than the Calvin Klein line of. The, I mean, I can't believe. <laughs> but rather than buy that than the Tom Cruise. Yeah, Tom Cruise. <laughs> By the way, I got such a vision on Shark Tank of bringing out Tom, and he walks into a plexiglass little box filled with mosquitoes. Yeah, and none of them are biting him. The sharks that he's not getting. See, let's zoom in on Tom. He's not getting bitten. 
Well, I got to say with mosquitoes, I, I lived in Atlanta for 10 years and the mosquitoes are almost as large as the cockroaches. And um, I would wear, you know, try to wear long sleeves and long pants, but the loose clothing, clothing is interesting because if I had like a little bit of skin exposed on the top of my foot, I'd get like 10 bites right in that little spot, you know, and it drove me nuts. So. Oh, I know it. And then you scratch it in your sleep. While you're sleeping, you start rubbing it and you wake up in the morning and things even bigger. Uh, and this just happened this week. Again, great news, I think, right, David? For ovarian cancer, a new a combination cocktail of drugs that looks like not only effective in helping cure cancers, but also preventing and keeping them at bay. Is that is it in advance? Is that right? Yes, this is wonderful news. And there are three basic kinds of ovarian cancer. The most common is the serous cancer. That's the one we see most often. But the problem with ovarian cancer, it's difficult to diagnose, limited treatment. So this is an advantage. And the prognosis stinks. It's a, it's a terrible prognosis. We have gotten better in extending the lives of people with ovarian cancer in the, in the 70s. The statistics were around 18% of people were able to induce a remission I'm not sure we were really talking about cure at that point. I don't think we were. But now that statistic has pretty much doubled. We're up to about 35% of people now can enter remission, and there is um, cure out there. Those at risk are white, middle-aged women with a family history. Those are the most at-risk people that are out there for this. The symptoms, which... Unfortunately, by the time you show up to the doctor with your symptoms, it's usually too late for a cure, and you're lucky if you can get into a remission. And those symptoms are abdominal and pelvic pain, uh, urinary frequency and urgency, exhaustion, a sense of uh, being full before you would normally get full after eating a meal. And so we haven't really come that far. So every little inch forward is, is big news for this disease. The diagnostics haven't changed in a long time. We have, we talked about biomarkers. There's the CA125 that we use. Uh, there's the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations that are highly associated with ovarian cancer. But this new drug combination is very interesting. We're back to this conversation about monoclonal antibodies. And they put two of these together, none of which you can ever pronounce. One is called avutomatin, and the other one is defactinibib. So that was impressive. Don't, don't write those down. But there are two of these. These were studies that came out of the, the UK, and they found that with these low-grade tumors, 50% of the patients that were given this combination responded very favorably and induced long remissions. The medicines work, by, as most of these monoclonal cancer therapies work, by identifying the protein on the surface of the cancer cell and inhibiting its growth and its survival. So they all sort of work the same way. What they did find was that the one drug, the first drug that I stumbled through, if you just did that drug, uh, you did get some uh, improvement, but you got four times the improvement when you combine these two drugs. And the combination of these two drugs is twice more effective than any previous treatment that we've had. 
I think what's really interesting in the discussion of ovarian cancer, and this information's been out a while, and I have a feeling we've spoken about this in the past, is that we know that most cancers of the ovary originate not in the ovary, but in the fallopian tube. And so if you can get a visual of you've got the ovary, which is this little nest of cells in, in a little circular organ, those eggs have to get to the uterus. So between the ovary and the uterus, there's something called a fallopian tube. And the eggs get released into the tube, they travel down the tube, and they end up in the uterus. If you remove the fallopian tube, you can prevent ovarian cancer for most of these cancers. So, which I think is astonishing and it's real. And so for women that are past their childbearing years, or women that are past their childbearing years but are going in for some other pelvic surgery, while you're in there, take out your fallopian tubes. So this this is encouraging, and this is curable with this technique. And David, what about for cancers that were totally resistant to treatment so far, like the chemo or radiation or other treatments? Does this step in there and also not just do better than them, but for people that didn't get a response, can this work? Yes. And that's the point of these monoclonal antibodies, because they're not just generic chemotherapeutic agents. They are very specific for these proteins that develop around the cancer. As these cancer cells mutate, we are going to change the monoclonal antibody that's going to match this mutation. This is in this field of what we now call personalized medicine, where they're going to be able to amend these these monoclonals to directly attack these mutations. If you can extrapolate how complicated this is going to be and how expensive this is going to be. There will be so many different mutations, and to create these monoclonal antibodies is not simple. How far down the road is this? Well, they're out. We have these for non-small cell cancers of the lung. Uh, Had a patient that had lung cancer and had huge lesions in her chest and 23 metastatic lesions in her brain. They mm. use one of these monoclonals. She went back a few months later. There was nothing seen in her chest. And on the, on the brain imaging, it was dramatically reduced. Now, ultimately, the cancer caught up with her, but that's because they mutate. Again, it's like the viruses that right. we're chasing right. and the bacteria that we're chasing. They're in a war against us, and so they have a clever way of figuring out how to survive. But they're out there. So, Peter, to answer your question, we do have several of these. That's and this, this is where cancer therapy is now being directed. How, how would you go about asking your doctor about possibly just removing the fallopian tube or whatever? Like you said, remove the fallopian tubes, but we leave the ovaries, right, so that they give the hormones out or you can decide to just remove the tubes. By the way, an outpatient laparoscopic procedure, oh. no, no big deal. While they're in there, they can take your ovaries, depending on where you are in your menstrual life. But it's, it's just a simple question, and the gynecologists know about this, so this is, you're not going to surprise them. But what I've been sort of surprised about is that when I speak to my patients about this, they don't seem to know this information it hasn't really been out there in the public arena. So yeah. that's our job. Now you're in the know if you listen to this podcast. 
So David, in this week's Hey, What About Me? Trisha has a question about bedtime, sleeping, and all the issues associated with getting a good night's sleep. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I have a question for you. I have trouble getting to sleep at night, even though I go to bed about the same time around nine. And I don't fall asleep until after midnight. I don't sleep well. Is there a best way or a best time to go to bed? Tricia, thank you. This is a very common question and a huge health problem. We talk about this a lot on our show about how important sleep is. And it's probably a third of the American people don't sleep well and they don't get enough sleep. And by enough sleep, we're talking about at least two hours of restorative sleep. And that's your stage four and REM sleep combined. And what happens during that period of restorative sleep is that our organs clean up, specifically the brain, because during the day there are cells that die and there's that debris, there are toxins that accumulate. And during this period of time of restorative sleep is when the cleanup takes place. And if left on the organs themselves, there's inflammatory changes, which then creates a vulnerability to chronic diseases and neurodegenerative diseases. We also are dealing with a circadian rhythm as an animal. We need to have some day-night regularity, and we depend on melatonin, which is produced by the pineal gland in the brain. And that gland wakes up and puts out melatonin between 11 and 2, 11 at night and 2 in the morning for pretty much all of us, no matter where we are. And so if you're not sleeping soundly, restoratively through that period, you're going to miss out on your melatonin's value. You can't take melatonin uh, at three in the morning to help you fall asleep because it's, it's not going to work. The machinery has been shut down at that point. And changes in melatonin also affect changes in serotonin because they're linked in, their, in the way they uh, are produced. So to get a good night's sleep, there are several things that we have to know before, Tricia, we get to what's the best way to go to sleep, what's the best time to go to sleep. We know that sleep hygiene, we've talked about this before, is critical that before you go to sleep, you want to make your environment quiet. You want to shut off the blue lights from your computers and your phones. Uh, we think the blue, the blue light actually interferes with melatonin production. Um, the light from your phone and your computer also is stimulating. So if you've got that open while you're trying to fall asleep and We also know that sleep has a genetic component to it. So we inherit our sleep patterns from one of our parents. If you look at the way you sleep, look at your mom or dad, my guess is you're going to find your pattern. Wait a minute. Who knows? First of all, let me just address a couple of things you just said before we move (laughs) too far away. Number one, everybody's got their computer or the phone before they go to bed. So that's an issue. That's literally how I fall asleep. Exactly. It's just everybody. (laughs) Number two... I've never gone into my parents' bedroom to see how they, do you know how you're, anybody of, of the bunch of us here, do you know how your parents, do you have any idea? My father could have tossed and turned his entire life. I have no idea. Or he could have gone out at 10 and been in a coma till morning. I have no sense of, I mean, I have a sense that my mother made him crazy so he didn't sleep well, but I can't imagine how they, I don't know how they slept. You bring that up, I'm thinking, I don't know how my, if well, my Peter, parents are good sleepers or not. P- Peter, some people speak to their parents and sometimes that conversation. Mine are deceased for a long time. So I'm guessing not sleep. And they You're going to have to get well. a medium. 
And David, did you know if your father and mother were light sleepers or not? My father was in the meat business. He came home. He left the house at four in the morning. He came back at four in the afternoon. He was asleep by six. So he was he was no uh, metric oh, you watched, for Because you watched him sleep. <laughs> yeah, you were literally standing over. Hey, dad, play with me. No, try to step over dad. Yeah, throw the ball to dad. Now get the ball. I mean, <laughs> so that was a little more obvious. But I do know, I do know from my mom that she was a good sleeper, and I I can put my head down. I'm gone. And I could, um, boy, wow. But I often ask patients when they're talking to me about their sleep, how did your mother sleep? How did your father sleep? And mm. most of the time, they will answer that question. Well, you know, when you do say about the blue lights, I do know, and I know it's terrible, but I will read Reddit to decompress about my trashy reality shows to decompress, and that's how I fall asleep. But I have to read till I'm so tired. So I make sure I get into bed by nine <laughs> so that by 1030 I'm falling asleep. But I do have that thing where I close my eyes and it's like from the, from the blue light. I, absolutely. Even though it has wow. night shift and whatnot or, or whatever, it's, it's not good. I know it's not good. Not good. But you know what puts me out for sure? The minute I pay for a pay-per-view movie. Yeah, that's the true. The minute I hit pay, I go out about 20 You're minutes. so tired. My wife, and then my wife goes, I said, how was that movie? I go, I didn't like it. She said, you didn't see it. <laughs> And I don't remember. Sugar, we saw that movie. I go, no, wait, there are 80 movies on Netflix. She says, we saw. I have no. Did you know that Tom Hanks, the, the, that he was on an island? I saw the plane crash. Yeah. And then I saw Helen Hunt show up. I missed the whole island. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a much <laughs> cheaper way to fall asleep. Oh, yeah. Than a Ambien or some other that's pill true. you might want to take. You just I can't do Ambien. You know that because we know people who did stuff on Ambien. And I'm so worried that I'll take a flight, take an Ambien, and wake up naked with a twist tie on my hands and people sitting on me and then get arrested by the sheriff. And I don't know what I did. So there's no way I'm tr even trying Ambien. Trisha, I hope you haven't fallen asleep by now um, because we haven't really gotten to the answer here. But we've talked about brain chemistry and how our imbalanced brain chemistry affects the way we sleep. So people that have dopamine imbalances, for instance, they have the FOMO issue. They don't want to fear of missing out. They don't, they stay up late. And it's for that reason. And people that are serotonin imbalanced, they worry themselves to sleep, which can take hours. So you have to understand where your brain chemistry is coming from. And there are things that you can do to mitigate that. Uh, sleep trackers, by the way, not so great. They're no. not scientifically correlated. They're not standardized. So you're not really getting what you think you're getting. You can't rely on those metrics. But the studies that just came out to get to Trisha's question recommend that we figure out what time we want to wake up. Turn this upside down. I want to wake up at six in the morning. You add, you go back nine hours. So therefore you have to go to bed at nine o'clock the night before to get your seven hours, set eight hours. That's really, you know, that's the sweet spot. So in Instead of looking at this as to what time you should go to bed, think about what time you want to get up and then go backwards nine hours. Makes sense. Um, yeah. And when you when your head hits the pillow, you you want to you want it to be a cool, dark, and calm room. Those are things that if you can mitigate that, that will make a difference. Uh, there are sleep apps the, that you can activate. I think Calm and Headspace are two of those that can help. 
Don't eat a big meal three hours before you go to bed. In fact, don't eat a meal three hours before you go to bed. Avoid really intense exercise before you go to bed. If you're a caffeinated person, shut your caffeine off at two in the afternoon because caffeine has a long lifespan. I did stop my afternoon caffeine and only have it in the morning and that's helped. And then when you're talking about exercise, when I lift heavier, like earlier in the day when I do weightlifting, that is literally the only time that I will sleep through the night. I, and I, I guess I've just exhausted don't. my, I do. No, I think because I've exhausted my body so much ah. that I will sleep through the night. And you're also generating some endorphins. So I, one recommendation that I give people is that after you have your dinner meal, go for a 30, 45 minute walk. It's not only going to help you metabolize your meal, but you're going to create endorphins close to your bedtime. And those endorphins are sedating. There is one pharmacologic product that I will recommend and that people listening should speak to their doctor about if they're struggling with this. And that's gabapentin. Gabapentin is a natural neurotransmitter. Our brain makes it and it makes it to help us become calm. And you can take a little bit of gabapentin. The dosing range is from 100 milligrams to 1800 milligrams that you can literally take every four to six hours. So it's safe. There's no addiction or dependency with gabapentin if you keep this at these low doses. I start people out, and again, speak to your doctor about this. Don't take this for gospel. But if you start out an hour or so before you go to bed with a 100 milligram capsule of gabapentin and then sort of slow down, and then when you get into bed, take two of those, that's 200 milligrams, you might just beat the problem, whether you have a serotonin or a dopamine imbalance, of being able to fall asleep. You'll be relaxed by the time you get into bed. You'll be worrying less. And for those that like to stay up later, you're also going to start to slow down. And that 200 milligram that you take when you get into bed is going to help uh, sustain you through the night. So, and does that work for almost everybody, David? It works for almost everybody. I don't want to give any guarantees and you certainly should speak to your doctor in case you have any contraindications. But if you have contraindications to gabapentin, you're probably not human because our brains make this. So Mm. it would be an issue. Hey, David, I got to ask you about, for people who travel a lot, if you said that melatonin is made between 11 and two, is that correct? Yes. And I'm traveling constantly. Is it 11 and two based on your home base and it doesn't reset? Or does it reset in time zones after a day or two, or does it never reset? How does that work? It's based on your time zone, your own clock. It's based on your internal clock. So if you're traveling to a time zone that's three hours ahead or behind or whatever it is, try to adjust your first night's sleep to that formula. Try to do the math and, and do it that way. So let's review today's today's episode. Today, we went over this new liquid biopsy blood test for cancer. Not ready for prime time, but it's going to change the conversation dramatically about how we diagnose cancers. And then we did a deep dive on them skeeters and why they love your blood so much. And hey, what about me? A new drug combo for ovarian cancer that's already out there that's doing pretty well. Great news for people that have this most common type of ovarian cancer, which is the serous type. And talk about your fallopian tubes with your gynecologist in case you are 
finished having a family and you're going in for some other pelvic surgery. This could be a cure for you. And then as far as sleep, which we just talked about, the best time to go to sleep, David? Figure out what time you want to wake up and then go backwards nine hours and that's your bedtime. There you go. If you guys want your questions answered by Dr. Kipper, and who wouldn't? They're such good answers. Why don't you head over to bedsidematters.org and your question just might get selected to be on the show. That's exactly right. And if you want to check out, we talk a lot about brain chemistry. Dr. David Kipper's book, Override, is a fascinating book that can help you discover your brain type, which then can help you live the kind of life you want to live because you sabotage yourself because of neurotransmitters, because of your brain type. So you might as well know. And Anna, of course, check out her website. She's got recipes and spices and her cookbooks, and it's all gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb recipes that are great. So go to AnnaVicino with one C.com and check that out. And as I always say, what do I always say? I say, thank you, Anna. Thank you, Dr. Kipper. Thank you, producer Laurie. And thank you for listening, of course. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. Have a safe, healthy, wonderful week, and uh, we'll see you next episode. And take care. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.